Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Theron Potter Bell, welcome to the Center of the Universe. I apologize, you are Theron Potter Bell the fourth, aka T Bell. Yes, welcome. sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Paul. Center of the Universe, baby. Yeah, man. Uh, all right. So you and I have known each other since we were what, 12, 13 years old? Yeah. Well, we, what what year did you get to St. Chris? Eighth grade. So I guess I, was, I probably started that year as a 12 year old. Yeah. Thir- 12, 13. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's when we first met. When, when did uh, we realize that we both really loved baseball? Was it in eighth grade? Yeah, it was eighth grade because we were 14 wins and one loss in eighth grade. We lost only to Louisa who was way better than us. Um, and you pitched that game. Because <laughs> I sucked at that. <laughs> but, well, I remember you were just like, because, I, I mean, we were 14-0, and I pitched a lot of the games, or 14-1, and I pitched a lot of the games, so you can kind of do the math on what everybody else's record was. So you were something and won. <laughs> and I remember you just being like, man, you would have lost to Louisa, too, because they were a <laughs> bunch of studs, man. They, I think they drove to the game, you know. They had beards like you've got today, and they were just jacked. And I think they ran us out of the park, too, man. I think it was like 10-1 or something. I don't even know we scored. But we won the other 14. Yeah, I don't know why we uh, pitched me that game, because I was not – I don't think I was a top three pitcher on that team. No, nah, I think it's because it's a non-prep league game, to be honest with you. So it was Koenig, Coach Koenig was our, our coach. Oh, that's right. And remember we played in the field house was in right field. So oh, like yeah. short porch in right field, like food could reach it, reach right. And then if you, and then I, cause I remember Tom Slater would drive a ball to left field. And if you were playing basketball out in left field, hooping it up, like it roll under your feet and you turn there and you'd see slates like round in second base heading for third <laughs> brown eyed, handsome man. <laughs> uh, he could, he could hit a baseball. There's no question about that. Yeah. Uh, and those basketball courts, they had to be 350. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, like I said, it rolled. There's no way you could yeah. hit that in the air. But it was like it was, that outfield was like pavement. So, like, if you got it going in the gap, and there was no fence. And Slates wasn't the fastest guy, but he would he'd make it for a stand-up. But, yeah, that was those were the days, man. Coach Koenig was, was, a, was an awesome coach, too. Enjoyed yeah, I, I, uh, I enjoyed being around Coach Koenig. Uh, all right, so we're going to come back to eighth grade baseball because there's definitely okay. a milestone uh, yeah. in your career that happened in eighth grade. Uh, so I was eight through twelve at St. Christopher's. You were K through twelve. So I was, yeah. So 13. literally, elementary, middle, and high school, all you knew was St. Christopher's. Yeah, the whole thirteen years from principals Griffith and finished up with McVeigh and um, yeah, Coach Kemper had him in lower school, uh, then through middle school, just all the discipline stuff we did there, and then through that's all I ever knew. I flirted with going to Freeman. Like I talked to my parents about it a couple times. Just because I honestly, like, I was like, I kind of wanted to be around girls more. <laughs> if I'm being perfectly honest with you. You and me both. Right, man. So I was having trouble, like, engaging girls at St. Catharines. Um, so that was, like, a big part of it. And then I also thought maybe baseball-wise it might be better. Um, but my parents talked me out of it. They were like, nah, you've come this far. The degree means a lot. It'll help you get into college, college preparatory, et cetera. So that was some really good advice because it would have been a bad move to go from K through 11 and then flip to Freeman for the last year. Oh, you were thinking about doing it your senior year. Well, in in high school, I would say it was like sophomore, junior year. Yes, I talked to – I remember having 
somewhat serious conversations about it. But yeah, so I was a I was a saint for 13 years. Dude, I'm telling you, our junior year, we were stacked. Yeah. I mean, we were better we were better than any public school team in the area, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, I'm probably I mean Tucker Tucker was, had, was yeah it's, was, I forgot was about Tucker. yeah Tucker was Tucker but if you throw out Tucker I think we could have played with anyone because if you go around that field we had how many college baseball players so we had uh, junior year was that junior year was Gilmer Minor who played at VMI yeah behind the dish Slates was at third v- VMI you were you know O'Farrell yeah did. O'Farrell was two years ahead of us, so he, he was the shortstop he, our uh, sophomore year. Yeah. Okay, yes, yeah, so you were short, and you did not play in college, right? I had uh, options to play in college, but I chose to go to a big school where I had no chance of making the team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then second base was Patrick O'Farrell, who played at VMI. First base was was it Food? No, it was Marshall, our junior year. Marshall, yeah, who, who was a stud at VMI as well. All these guys were studs at VMI. Um, and then we had Wolfie in center field, um, and I don't think Wolfie played college baseball. Um, he didn't. Yeah, and I, I pitched uh, Virginia Wesleyan and Virginia Tech. Um, and then who else do we who have them left and right? Was Moose a- in there? A-Rocks was some, in there somewhere, I thought, but maybe not his sophomore year. Yeah, A-Rocks played some first, and I think he and he pitched some. Who was in yeah. left, though? Well, our senior year, it was Patrick O'Farrell. I don't know who it was. Our, it was yeah. it was Wolfie to start the season. I thought. Yeah, it was Wamsley. Was Wamsley, was Wamsley was in center because I don't think Wamsley played his senior year. But well, he, he came out to the first practice too. <laughs> right, and just never heard from again. Yeah. But but yeah, and Wamsley could play it too, and he he, he was like he'd lay out for everything out there. Oh, he was awesome. Go get it, steal a base for you. Um. So yeah, I mean that was. That team, like you said, was loaded, and m- most guys, if the guys that didn't play college baseball, certainly could have played at a small school, if not a big school. And yeah, I mean that was that was unheard of. Um, but our best record was actually our sophomore year, though. We were, I think, we were fourteen one that year. Uh, we I, that was arguably our best team. Yeah, yeah. but we won preply eighty four. I'm sorry, eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. We won preply first place. And back then, there was no states, there was no regional, so it's kind of hard to look at the records. Like nowadays, St. Christopher's is off the charts with what Coach says has done there, and they're winning states, and they're always competitive for states. Um, but they play thirty games, and right? Thirty plus games, and whereas we were, we played the prep league schedule, which was seven teams other than us, eight teams total, so that's fourteen games, and we got like one other game, like we play, like I said, Louisa or. Can't remember who we played normally, but um, we played Benedictine our senior year. I remember we that. did, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what's funny about our sophomore year? So I, I knew I had a feeling you were going to pitch in college. Uh, the infield was Marshall at first, me at second, Ren at short, Tom at third. Yep. Literally, the infield plus the catcher. If I because I was offered a scholarship to go to VMI, you would have had the entire infield plus the catcher playing at yeah. VMI potentially if I'd gone there. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. Because I remember Slate's committed like early in his senior year, and that which back then was kind of kind of early. You know, like people figured out their senior. Nowadays, guys are committed in like seventh grade, so it's a completely different different thing now. But I I loved I loved those baseball careers, man. I still go back. Sisman Dare has done such a great job with 
like the dugouts got our names up in the rafters. He's got the, the obviously the facility's amazing now with the dugouts and the backstop and down the right field line. He's got that sign up with all the like the dates of the years we won, um, won it and the, the years that they've won state. So he's done a really good job of keeping up with people. And I, I know we, we went back for that one alumni game, got honored before the game and um, we did, you know, we did that zoom with him that one time. So he's done an awesome job keeping people together. No, uh, Tony was the only assistant coach we had when you and I were seniors. Uh, yeah. Cause we had Ackerman for sophomore and junior year. And then it was, uh, Bill Pegram, our senior. And Tony was like a 23 year old kid fresh yeah. out of college. Yeah. And, and he loved baseball and, and we loved him. Yeah, we did. I, yeah, I, I do. I, actually, Ackerman was only our sophomore year. Oh, we had Pegram our junior and senior year? Yeah, we had junior Pegram our junior and senior year. And I loved Ackerman. Um, I mean, he was like he he was a disciplinarian, but like in a good way. And I respected him. He was really good for me because it helped me. I needed to be disciplined and have like structure. And I um, I I loved playing for him. It it broke my heart when he left, man. I was like, I was so into it and dialed into being the best team we could be. And it just. It was, I had never really like, dealt with that before, you know, like you were just awesome leader and then poof, he was just gone. So I think, I think, uh, and that was shocking, but we won it that year. So we sent him out on the right note. Uh, Cause I remember, um, who's the gentleman that does, uh, the newscast, Vern Sanders, Vern, um, uh, Vernie, uh, Glenn, Vernon Glenn. Vernon Glenn. I yes. remember he came over and did a, uh, um, a, a, um, TV spot on us from for Channel Six, whichever station he was on, um, and they made a big deal out of Ack leaving, but let us win in the championship that year. Uh, Ackerman, to your point, was a disciplinarian. Uh, he would hold you to a, a level that he had in his mind was the right level to hold you to. But he, you ended up liking him, and he had a twinkle in his eye too, man. He would, yeah. he was kind of fun to be around. Once he, he trusted you, and you trusted him, he was great to be yeah. around. So I've always looked at leadership like I know I'm working. I know I'm playing for or working for a good leader. If one, it makes me feel good to make them feel good. Two, I don't want to let them down. And then three, like I just give everything I got. And he was that like he 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 did that for me. And I've kind of like even when I even when I moved into like corporate America and stuff like when I'm working for a guy, like if I can say those three things then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting out my best output in those times, or at least enjoying it the most and also working hard. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, powerful, man. It, it's hard to come by guys like that. It really yeah. is. Do, do you remember the drill team that Ackerman had? No. Were, were you there? Okay. So that was probably the year before you, cause you did eight, I think it was like, actually, I think it was seventh grade and it was in the Scott gymnasium and Ack was a, was a military guy. Marines, I think. And it was a deal where you came in and it was literally like a, a, a drill sergeant. Like he was like 10 hut. And he did like left turn, right turn. And like, again, you know me, I'm not like really that type of guy, but like, because Ackerman ran it, I was like, I'm making this team. And it was, and you only a few people made it. And there was like 30 guys. And I can't, we, we I can't remember what we had the parents come, like your parents came and hit and they, you know, we put on like a show for him, but again, it was Ack bringing out the best of me. Because if it had been someone that, someone else, I would probably, I probably wouldn't even try to do it <laughs> because it was Ack. Like I wanted to be on that team. 
Yeah. Uh, he was my homeroom teacher in eighth grade. And yeah. I'll never forget, we had to play sports, right? Right. Um, yeah. Every season. And he said, what are you, what are you going to, I walked in first day. I'd like, I just met him. He goes, what are you going to do? And, and our options were football, soccer, and cross country. And mm-hmm. I had just come from public schools where I was getting crushed on a daily. Yeah. And I said, I think I'm going to run cross country. He goes, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That was pretty much that. Yeah. yeah, it's because, yeah, we had those, um, were they little, like, mini-mester things? Like, every every teacher would, like, teach a subject. And because I remember Coach Koenig did, like, NCAA basketball, and it was, like, a half-hour thing, like, after lunch. Um, and I can't remember what ACT did, but middle school was a very interesting time, for sure. And uh, Ackerman, Ackerman had this, I mean, this wouldn't fly today, but he had his paddles on the wall. You know, and he never used them on me, and I never really saw him use them on on, on people and if he did it was a love tap but um <laughs> but he had like paddles up on the wall man <laughs> imagine that today oh uh, it's a non-starter hey yeah. hey so who, who else obviously ackerman had a big influence on you and Koenig sounds like did as well who else in middle school really influenced you bob blanton um coach blanton was uh a, a weightlifter he was on the like you the team i think he was an alternate for the olympic team for weightlifting and he and he was an enormous and muscular dude like his shoulders were weight were you know low and he taught latin and he had the ultimate respect given to him by every human being that came in his presence and like like you would like Latin, like I remember 80% of the grade was like literally 80% was like the vocabulary quizzes. And then the other 20% was, was everything else. And so I would spend like three nights every night prior to the quiz, like trying to do well. Cause you knew if you didn't, and and what coach or Bob Blanton did coach Blanton was at the end of those quizzes, you had to say how many you missed. And so that's how, like, you handed the quiz to the guy next to you, and then he would go around the room. And I, so I was like the third person, because I was B for Bell. And so you'd have to be like two, three. And if you said anything other than three, like, he gave you this glare of three misses on a fake hybrid quiz, and like, you never forgot. You're like, I'm never doing, I'm never, I'm never missing three again. Um, so, so him, and he, and then it, it trained, he was our um, weightlifting coach too. So um, as I'm sure, you know, you, you remember working with him and he set up really, I, I remember that one, the summers I would go up to St. Chris, I'd ride my bike up there and, and work out. And he was always like telling me about, you know, the pitch to do better and for pitching bigger, stronger, faster, you got to get a stronger, lower body. Cause I remember Marshall Simpson threw a lot, threw harder than I did. And he, you know, he had like, the, he was a bigger dude, long, big, lower body, big thighs. And so um, Bob Blanton was telling me stuff, you know, that I needed to do back then to, to get bigger, stronger, faster. But I tell you what, not, not, not to, to get ahead too much, though, but one thing about that that time frame for baseball versus the time frame today is most of the things that people were telling us back then. And this isn't St. Christopher's wise. This is every, every little league coaches is so different than today. And I'll go by it piece by piece. Back then, they told us to run distance as a pitcher, and now it's run sprints and become more explosive. Back then, it was don't lift much, if at all, because you'll get too muscular, too tight, and as a pitcher, you need to be loose and long. No video and mechanics back then that, you know, you get, you know, like a VCR, but nothing that you could consistently break down like you can today. Um, 
mechanics training was very like I, I specifically remember like literally going to the library and, and and checking out Tom House's book and like reading it. Whereas now you can just go online and just a wealth of information. Not much on nutrition back then. Certainly, if you dug into it, you could get the basics on nutrition. But now, you know, they have nutrition dialed in. So one of my like, I guess we would use the word regret, but I wish I had known now what I if I wish I'd known then what I know now, because if I could apply because I had enormous effort and, and intensity to try to be the best pitcher that I could be. But I was doing the wrong things. Like I was out on the track at night running distance and I should have been running sprints and all those things I just listed. If I could get today's environment, that's why players today, that's why pitchers throw 95 consistently. And there's high school kids flipping it in their 90. Whereas in, in the, the fastest baseball pitcher in 1986 in Richmond, Virginia was Mike Milchin. And Milchin topped at 85. And nowadays a, a second pitcher on a big high school He's sitting 85. And yeah. the difference is what I just said, knowing what to do and applying it. And gosh, I, going tying this back into like with Bob Blanton was, you know, it was like every coach, like these guys, like it just, it just, that information wasn't out there yet. So I think back about that a lot. Yeah. No, well, no internet too. Right. So even if somebody was figuring something out in some part of the country, it wasn't making it to central Virginia. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, T, you've obviously, I mean, you, you and I played basketball together. Uh, you, yep. You've played other sports growing up, but uh, baseball in particular, and then within baseball, pitching for you has, has been borderline an obsession. What is it about pitching that you love so much? Well, I started in, in Tuckahoe Little League and where, like, baseball – and particularly all-stars is an obsession. And so in, in Tuckahoe Little League, anything short of a state championship in all-stars is a complete failure. And Howard Weinberg was one of our coaches when we were, like, when we were 13. And that was the first thing that introduced me to two-a-days. We did in the morning. This is for summer all-stars trying to make it to Williamsport. In the morning, two and a half hours of, of defense, go eat, come back in the afternoon, two and a half hours of offense. And I fell in love with baseball then because it, I loved that grind. I loved the, the I loved like trying to march through to try to make it to Williamsport, even though we never really got close, but we did win States one year or we won district one year and made it to States. Um, but being, a, you know, part of those teams, that's really what lit my, my, my passion on fire for it. And, for pitching, I mean, I just – I was good at pitching pretty early on. Um, I, I was always able to throw strikes. Um, I was always able to compete. Um, the more I put into it, the better I got, and I saw that. Um, you know, I was a pretty good hitter, but, but certainly not as good as a, as a pitcher that I was – as I was a pitcher. So – but that, that just set me on fire as a tucker of the Little League. And even today, like, as I've gone through – you know, and then we went to, to high school and then we were really good. You know, we won those three years and then going into college and pitching in college and then passing along to my son, who's a pitcher now, Hunter. Um, that's really just been a big part of a big part of our lives. And I've been able to apply it like to corporate America, meaning I, I worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car for 13 years. I was 
successful there. And, and when you look at all the jobs that I've had, I'm sure we'll get into that, but all the jobs that I've had, like they all line up similarly, like in baseball, it's your ERA, your batting average, you know, wins and losses, numbers of pitches. And when I go over to corporate America for enterprise or now I'm working for ADT, it's the same type of statistical things. And you're always looking to move that needle. And so I've been able to like apply the competitiveness that I had for baseball for those numbers into corporate America and, and for the jobs that I've had to be successful. And it's really helped me a lot. Yeah, it works, right? Yeah. Yeah. I said, I was going to come back to, uh, a milestone event for you in, in eighth grade. You want to walk me through the game against the, uh, the Cougars. I, and we were at collegiate, right? We were. Yeah. So it was eighth grade, um, at, at collegiate. Um, it was just a regular weekday game. Um, and it's, you know, it's 21 up, 21 down. Um, the thing, the, the couple things that stand out to me are the, the following. One was Al Carter was playing left field. And he came up to me in between every inning because, as you know, in baseball, like if you got a no-no going, like people don't talk to you. If you got a El Perfecto going, people might say something, but they keep saying the same thing like they kind of get it. And so he walks by me and he, he's like, give him a smurf, a smurfable time. That was when smurfs were a big deal. So he walks by me every every inning. He's like, hey, give him a smurfable time. So like I'm going out there for the seventh inning. You know, I got to get three up, three down. That was that was the first thing. The second thing was the, um, the last out was a comebacker and the guy like nubbed it out in front of me just off to the first base side. So I scooped it up, picked it and threw it and, and food was at first base. And as I was releasing the ball, Rich Food Reynolds just says history is about to be made. <laughs> and so I, and I, and I throw it to him, he catches it. And that was the year that the song, I don't even remember the song, always there, always something there to remind me. Sure. Yeah. So I got the game ball and I'm on the van coming home and food is like singing, like holding the ball saying, always something there to remind me, you know, like I was going to take that ball and and always use it. So I do have to give um, some credit though, because there were some good, good plays. There, There was one ball hit to the left side, which where you were playing short. Yeah. Yeah. So you made a nice playing short and then, I can't remember who was playing second. Was it who would have been second ball? I don't remember. Yeah, so I, I have the I don't have it right in front of me, obviously, but there was a ball hit to you, and there was two or three balls hit to the second base, and they gobbled them up. The comebacker, and then everyone else was a strikeout. Yeah, so, um, there were five balls hit in play. Yeah, there's uh, but all those but those were nice plays, and there was like a backhand up the middle. You made that play, so. Yeah, so that's that. That was that was that was an exciting day. I I I came close. My I think it was my senior year um, against Fork Union, the second start of the year. Pitched a no hitter. I walked the first guy of the second inning, so it was twenty two up, twenty one down, and everyone else was. Otherwise, that would have been El Perfecto. But I remember Wolfie O'Keefe comes up to me in the seventh. Like it's, we're about to go out for, I guess, so we're at home. So it would have been the top of the seventh. We got a perfect game going except for the walk, no hitter going. And he's like, how bummed are you that you walked that guy in the second <laughs> inning <laughs> right now? You know, it would have been one thing if he'd said it after it was done, but I was still like, oh crap, I gotta get the no-no, you know what I mean? So um, I remember Wolfie saying that to me, but that, that, that team was pretty, pretty easy to pitch for, man. Like we've already talked about that in this earlier, but 
Yeah, All you had to do was throw strikes, man, and uh, you guys gobbled everything up, and we got to, you know we throw up double digit runs, and the formula just worked. That was a, that was a fun team. Real quickly, back to eighth grade when that mm-hmm. ball was hit to me during I think it was like the fourth or fifth inning, and I'm like, yeah. oh my god, I can't screw this up because because we were feeling the perfect game after you went through the lineup the first time, right? We're like, yeah, oh, you just sat everybody down, and then Al Carter playing left field. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Big Al, but he was fast, and you know he could steal a base. Um, and he's I, co- he's coordinated too. He is, yeah. So I one of the, arguably after you, probably arguably the best the best athlete in our grade. Um, but I, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, Horatio Alfonso Carter was in left field. Uh, I th- believe he was a junior. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you knew at some point in high school that you really wanted to play in college, right? I did. I mean, I wanted to play professional baseball. You know, I was thinking big time. You know, I was, that was my sights were that. And I, I yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. A, I, that was, like you said, before the Internet. I, I, here's here's how much I wanted to play college baseball. Back then, we did everything by the mail, U.S. mail. Um, I wanted to play at James Madison because James Madison went to the College World Series in 1985. And that set me on fire. I saw him on ESPN. I was like, I'm go- I want to get the Omaha. And this is in Virginia. So um, Coach Babcock was the coach there, Mike Babcock then. Um, I wrote physically with my hand a letter to Coach Babcock every single week. And I said, I want to come there. This is what I'm doing. This is how what I need to improve on. This is what I think of your university. And I wrote him and wrote him and wrote him for like two years, every single week. Put a stamp on it, dropped it in the mail. Um, I got lucky because my mom knew Jack Abergast, who was the tennis coach at the time. And through Jack Abergast, talked to Babcock and said, this guy wants to go there. And he was like, oh, that guy writes me every week. He's like, well, can we get a visit? So he's there. So I went up there on a visit and really, really wanted to go there. And Coach Babcock finally came to see me. He went to see me at Shepherd Stadium, which is in Colonial Heights, on a Saturday. And I was pitching. And so this was my big chance in front of him. It was it was a it was a. It was a fall league that Ken Simmons put together. It wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with St. Chris. And I gave it everything I had. The problem was I didn't have a throw hard enough. And he wrote me a letter, and I'll never forget it. He's like, you know, you have great command. You have great potential. Like the third line was like, however, you do not currently have Division One velocity. If you work on it and get it up, let us know, and we'll come back out and look at you. Um, so that broke my heart. But. Your question is how bad, that's how bad I wanted it. I sat down every single week and wrote him a letter. And I I still, you know, with with my coaching today, like I still use that letter as like, that's an example of like today, you know, guys send the emails and go to the camps of like building a relationship with a guy. Now, at the end of the day, Coach Babcock didn't think I was good enough to pitch at at James Madison. And that's fair. And I was not probably, you know, I was probably throwing, you know, a couple miles an hour slower, but I got myself in the door. And had I been good enough, all of that would have paid off to go yeah. to JMU. You turned 54. So as a couple of 54-year-olds uh, reminiscing about <laughs> uh, you, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the spring ba- uh, break baseball trip our senior year of high school. Yeah. But I'd love to get it from your perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, lessons learned. I mean, that w- I was really excited about that trip. Um, I had never been away to, to really to play baseball. We all went in a van um, down there, um, and you know we always give you know young kids advice. You know, make sure you make good decisions. 
stay out of trouble. And that night, myself and the first night, myself and a, a few other folks um, made some bad decisions regarding alcohol. So um, the next morning, um, I guess that was Coach Pagram. And I think Coach, yeah, I think it's Coach Pagram because he was a head coach, just called me in into the room and said, you know, hey, um, you're going home. And I was like, I was devastated. So I, I, you, you, Mr. Gilman or uh, Mr. Minor, the Gilmer um, Miner. Yeah. Gilmer Miner's dad drove me back and you were with me in the car that day. And that was yeah. a sad day, man. I remember I, I went back and, um, you know, my, it was just, it, it was tough, man. Um, I, I ended up rallying because I had a really good senior year. Um, and you know, I was able to, I was able to, you know, I was able to, to come back and, and, and pitch well, but I missed a really good opportunity to, to pitch in Florida. You know, maybe Scott's could have been there. Plus it was just a fun trip. Um, so, so, so that happened, um, you know, lesson learned, um, but you know, it's, it's, it happens today, you know, to different, sure. I mean, schools here and there, you know, we'll need to go through all the details of it, but it's not something that's uncommon to happen. So, um, and it was nothing crazy, man. It was, you know, we, we were drinking beer in, in our room and we weren't supposed to have beer in our room. That, that it was, it was nothing more than that. So, but it was enough and it was, it was the wrong thing to do. Well, you, you were sad. Our whole team was sad because you were easily our best pitcher uh, and, and no offense to our other pitchers on that team, but you were clearly the ace. Yeah. Um, and we were going to have fun down there to that point. We got to play, I think three or four different teams. Uh, we stayed at the 4-H camp. I can tell you this much. You did not miss that, T. <laughs> 4-H camp was not not a lot yeah. of fun. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we, we definitely missed you on that trip. But uh, you made up for it uh, for the rest of the season because uh, you were on fire your senior year. Yeah. Well, I was um, – yeah. I mean, it was it, – once we got rolling, we got rolling. And we, we start we, – we always opened with Trinity. And um, – we won that first game and then we were just off and running ended up winning it all i think i think collegiate helped us out because they lost they lost a doubleheader like blue ridge and just then then we were sailing home from there but um yeah but it was it, it was it was a great senior year um in the end and you know we did hang a banner um so all's well that ends well there and i, I certainly have a good a good war story to pass along to folks that when i when i'm coaching now that it's from the heart yeah, no doubt. All right, so JMU wasn't in the cards. Um, who was knocking at the time? Yeah, you know, so I can't. I I had I had two offers. Um, I had interest. I mean, I had interest from VCU. Donnie Phillips was my Legion coach, and they were very interested in me. Um, um, I talked to ODU. Um, interest, uh, but the two offers I had was Virginia Wesleyan and Farrell. And I went on trips to both those schools, and they're very similar. They're both Division III. Um, they both um, had excellent coaches. They had Abe Naff was the coach at Ferrum, um, who, who was recently the athletic director as well. I think he might have retired from there now, but he was a legend. Um, then Billy Wagner went there and, you know, ended up make so he kind of put them on the map. Um, and then Virginia Wesleyan was Coach Booth, Nick Booth. Um, Actually, Booth came to our game against Fork Union when I threw that no-hitter we were talking about. So that really helped me for the offer there. Um, Booth told me there was two well, two reasons why I picked Virginia Wesleyan over um, 
Ferrum. Number one was it was the beach versus the mountains. So I, I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> two was um, Nick Booth said I could play two-way at Virginia Wesleyan, so I was going to play like third base and pitch. When I got there, I quickly said I don't, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to try to be the best pitcher I could be. Um, so those are the main reasons. But um, Abe Naff was – I went there on a cool visit. He, he was the best ping-pong player I've ever seen in my life, by the way. I don't know mm. he's – played ping pong in, in, in the basement and he, he whooped my butt. But so those were the two offers and that's, and that's where I went to Virginia Wesleyan um, for the, um, to start. And how long were you there? Two years. I was there two okay. years. Yep. So um, we were pretty good. We were pretty good the first year. We got a lot of injuries and coach Booth hadn't really kicked in his recruiting yet. Um, the other thing that, that um, coach Booth told me at the time was he said, if you come here, and Coach Booth was awesome. He he was a two two way catcher and outfield All American at ODU. Young, energetic, um, fun to play for. Also a disciplinarian. Um, and he's like, if you come here, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I plan to get a Division One job in, in th- two or three years from now. Probably two. I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna take our best players with me, and they're gonna get the first scholarships. And I believe him. Okay. And that was another huge reason why I went there. Now, after about a year or after a year that I didn't see him interviewing for jobs. And so I talked to him in the outfield one day. I said, Hey, I want to, I want to play division one and, and, you know, move, keep moving. And, and he's like, you know, you've shown enough and done enough here. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the phone and make some phone calls for you. So he called um, coach Hartman at Virginia tech and, um, and Virginia tech offered me. So, um, after two years at Virginia Wesley, and then I transferred to to Virginia Tech. Um, I did not pitch as well there as I did at Virginia at Virginia Wesley, and it was a much higher level of competition, obviously. Um, and it was good; it was much better socially, academically, um, just a, a better school, in my my opinion. Um, so I, I'm still glad that I went there. I also met my wife there and the family, and you know, all, all came from that move. But um, that's kind of how it all played out. Yeah, um, I, I do have to go back to high school one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, your dad was awesome enough to take you, uh, we'll, we'll call him food for this, uh, and, yep. and me to an Orioles game, a Yankees game, uh, and, and Cooperstown. And yep. I'll never forget that trip, one, because you and Rich were on it, but uh, your, your dad couldn't have been nicer, more humble, more gracious. Yep. Uh, like, like if the world was full of more people like your dad, we'd be a better world. Uh, and I couldn't believe he, he, he had the patience to deal with us <laughs> for that long of a trip. Yeah. Yeah. And no, that was a, that was a heck of a trip. I, I'll never forget it. And it was good time. So we drove up there. I mean, we weren't, none of us were old enough to drive. So my dad did all the driving. And, um, I remember going to the to hall of fame. I've, I've only been, I haven't been back since. But um, and I'm sure it's grown up in a much more elaborate now. But that was definitely a super memorable trip, and and uh, and having food there with us too. So I appreciate what you said about my dad. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I got to go on that trip. Really am. Um, I I don't know. How, I imagine this is still hard for you to talk about, even though it happened over 30 years ago. But uh, yeah. you you lost your dad. Your, uh, your mom lost her husband. Yep. Your sisters lost their dad um, tragically in, in a, a very surprise sort of situation. Can can you 
feel comfortable talking about that? Yeah, yeah. So this was um, May 22nd, 1992. Um, it was a Friday night, and it was pretty uh, – I was I was back here in Northern Virginia with uh, uh, with my girlfriend, soon-to-be soon wife, and um, just got a call from my mom, and she said my dad had been in a car wreck. And back then there was no phones, so, you know, you just – you had the one phone call, and then, then you have to get in the car and drive to Richmond. Um and that, that drive was hell because you didn't know, you know, how it was going to end. Um, and I remember that night the traffic was awful, man, because they were doing the, doing um, out on 95, they were doing uh, construction. So it took us like three and a half hours to get there. You know, yeah, it's normally like two. So anyway, we went to St. Mary's. We, we were told to go to the hospital. So we went to St. Mary's Hospital and my mom was there and, you know, she's, you know, she let me know my dad had passed away in the in the car accident and we didn't know any of the details at the time obviously she's like yeah it was a police chase someone got him they said they got him got boxed up and just one thing led to another and it was kind of hazy so I went home that night in my mom's house that was a tough night and then um, my sisters um were were in, at outer banks um so we got in touch with them and they drove home from outer banks that night so like, I remember like just like sitting outside waiting for my sister, my two sisters to come home. Um, so they finally got home at like around three in the morning. So that was again, a tough time. And it was crazy the way it happened, man, because that morning the Richmond times dispatch came and I was still sitting outside on my steps, like May 23rd. Now, you know, my parents just like, you know, thinking this through and they threw the paper down, man. And like my dad's car was on the front page. Like it was like my dad's the same Volvo that we went to Hall of Fame in. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, you know, so this is crazy. So anyway, so what happened was they're going down Broad Street. My dad, and this this car in a, an old Plymouth Valiant is going down Broad Street. It's going 37 and a 25. Um, Officer Mason from the Richmond County, Richmond Police pull, tries to pull over the, the driver. Um, he, he got pulls over at first. And it's right there, like in sort of in like the fan district and guy shines his light into the guy's window and says, you know, let me see your driver's license and registration. So the guy, for whatever reason, has a change of heart and like goes back into traffic and the chase started slow at first. Like it was just like literally like like 30 miles an hour just going through the streets of Richmond slowly. And so this guy, Officer Mason, calls for backup. So they get at a light they're sitting at the light and the guy the guy's trapped so one of the cars eases forward and creates a little space and this guy in the valiant decides to just go for broke and goes and threads the needle between these two cars and just punches it and so this guy starts ripping through the streets of richmond literally 85 miles an hour blowing through stop signs blowing through um traffic signals they got a, a helicopter over it and this was all in the paper too, like the transcripts between the cops and the helicopter. And they're like, you know, hey, um, you know, we're following him. Here's the license plate. And at this point, there's like six cop cars following this chase, and they're ripping through Richmond at 85 miles an hour, with zero regard for anything other than catching this guy. So finally, the helicopter says, "Careful, oncoming traffic, oncoming traffic," and that's my dad. And this guy T-bones my dad, and, and at, at um, I can't think of the. It'll hit me in a minute. The name of the intersection. T-bones my dad, 
and um, the Valiant flips over, kills the guy who was driving instantly on the, and on the, on the pavement right there. And then my dad's car, it was a Volvo. Volvos are built really strong front to back, but not side to side so much. And this is back when they're saying you know, Volvos are unbelievable. So um, my dad like got thrown into like this brick wall. Um, and so it, like, and then it bounced back. My dad actually survived the, the, the crash. He lived for two hours and died on the operating table at St. Mary's. But he was a triathlete in great shape and like, you know, very fit. So he was able to battle for a while. Um, but it, but, and when I saw him in the casket, like he only had a cut on his forehead and he looked totally normal, but it was all the internal damage that, you know, that, that, that killed him. So that was, that was what happened with my dad. Um, ultimately Richmond County, Richmond police, um, you have to have, um, like gross, gross negligence. If you're the police, it's a higher standard. So we chose like not to like sue or anybody. Um, but they came to our officer Mason and, and some of the head people came to our house like a couple of days later. And yes, we wanted to ask them questions and that was pretty tense. Like they definitely towed the line. Like I couldn't, like my sisters immediately left the room. So it was just me and my mom. And so like, I was questioning these guys. I was like, man, why did you do that? You know, like, what would you do that again? Like, you know, if this was switched around and this was your dad, you know, you had his license plate, you had the make and model, your complete utter disregard for everyone at 85 miles an hour. And they just towed the line. They said, look, we did our job. We do it again. We did exactly what we we're supposed to do. It was a bad result. So it was a lot different, I guess, now than it is today. Like I see now, like police chases are still a big thing, but like, you're not allowed to do speed. It's like different counties, like unless you know the person, um, you know, has done something crazy, then you can't chase them. What what Officer Mason said was he said it was attempted capital murder because going, going back to the story, remember when I said he pulled him over and then he started off slow. Officer Mason claims that he tried to hit him right there. So it was capital murder attempt on the cop. So because of that, he said oh, he can go for broke at that point. And back then, there's no cameras, there's no cell phones, so it's all people's word. So that's what that's that's what happened with my dad. Well, you and I are very familiar with that part of the city, and uh, people shouldn't be driving 45 in that part of town, much less yeah. 85. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit. It was, the the intersection was a bad intersection. Like right there, there's a big wall, and I've driven this a hundred times, like just like my dad's route and what he saw, and I drove I drove the guy's route and what he saw just to try to replay it in my mind and what happened that night. And my dad was an excellent driver, man. Like, like he never drove over the speed limit. He had no tickets. He was safe. He had good reactions. Like and that matters. And there was a big wall there. He had no line of sight. So as soon as he entered that intersection, immediately the cut, the guy was come like hit him immediately. Like I, if he had had any other chance, I think, you know, he, there was no way to drive through it. Um, and then the other thing about the gentleman that, that, that caused the accident, he was out on parole for drugs and he was going to jail if he had gotten a speeding ticket, even much less a DUI, much less uh, eluding the police. So he was all in for whatever happens to me, happens to me that night. Now, I'm obviously don't know that for sure, but in my mind, um, that's probably because he, he knew he was going back to prison for the rest of his life um, if he got caught after he had done what he had already done. So. You know, the, the, I'll never forget when I read the that newspaper 
that was that I told you where I saw the front of my, my dad's car on it. I'll never forget the first sentence in that article. The first sentence in that article, which was written by Mark Holmberg in May of 1992, was, quote, two men from two different worlds were driving two miles apart on May 22nd, 1992, end of quote. And I thought that that really capsulized the whole situation because you know, this gentleman was out on, you know, had a different life. You know, he, he was out on drug parole and and had 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 some criminal past. And then my dad was, you know, had, had was a, you know, a, a good had not dealt with those types of things. You know, he was a vice president of United Virginia Bank and was upstanding person. So um, it just kind of kind of shows you, you know, it just how quickly things can change. Um, but those guys intersected on that night. And, and uh, like Holmberg said, and that, he's like, he said the guy had had a tough life. And he's like, on this night, he took Bell with him. Um, so, and, and, and that's exactly what happened. You were uh, dating your, your your wife now, but girlfriend mm -hmm. at the time. Um, yeah. How long had y'all been dating when your dad passed? So we had been dating, we met in 1990. So we've been dating for two years might have been closer to a year but that's a good point because I was really glad that Beth is my wife I was really glad that Beth got to know my dad so I don't have to just like tell him tell her you know like everyone I'm sure thinks their dad's awesome but I, she got to, to meet him and and understand him but that was one of the heartaches man I remember because I kind of had a feeling in my gut for that four-hour drive down 95 that this wasn't going to end well um because of the, like, I could kind of hear it in my, my mom's voice, you know, and she actually didn't know when she, she told me that she, he died and they wouldn't tell her till someone was with her. So Joan Beck, Carl Beck, who graduated with an 80, 87 was a friend of mine. She went to the um, St. Mary's when we were in a waiting room um, that day and, or that night, this was around like 11, 30, 12 o'clock when I got there. It was actually, it's interesting. It was the last, the last show of Johnny Carson was that night. Oh, wow. I remember, yeah, I remember we watched Johnny Carson's last show, turn the light off or going to bed. So that was what, whatever time that is, like 1130 when that ends. And that's when the call came in. Um, so um, when we got there, yeah, that was, I mean, it was like, you know, I, I turned the corner, I went in the room saw my mom's face and knew, you know, and then she just, you know, collapsed. So, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. It was a tough night, man. A very tough night. And, um, that's just, you know, it's one, one, like, you, you know, everybody knows you're one, one call away, one phone call away from, uh, a change. And we, we got that call on that night. Yeah. I mean, T, I can't, name all the people that were impacted by that but it was uh a lot of folks and, and obviously you were you were really close to your dad at least that was the impression i had and so yeah. uh, I'm, I'm glad beth was with you and you and she knew your dad to, to the point you brought up earlier and i'm glad that uh you guys have been dating for a while and obviously you guys have been married a long time now and so I, i'm sure she helped you get through that um yeah. but i imagine the next few years of your life were were strange man dad wasn't around anymore yeah, I mean, I hadn't dealt with death at all then. Like, I was smooth sailing at that point, man. I had two awesome parents living at, you know, Horseman Road, going to St. Christopher's, you know, hanging out with you guys. I mean, nothing like that, man, nothing. I mean, you know, averaging attack, playing baseball. 
and then and then that so it was the first time that i had ever like gotten hit in the face with something crazy like that so um and i i um one thing that that i was really proud of that came from that was um his his funeral was at saint stephen's church and it was packed man it was like out the door and i i I didn't really even know what a eulogy was and they were like like literally like an hour before the funeral they were like do you want to talk and i was like talk i mean i don't don't, what do you mean and they're like well you know you can stand up and like say stuff about your dad i was like okay i'll do that so like I, i literally walked in my backyard with a note card and like just like scribbled down eulogy and i got up in front of the church and and i delivered this eulogy and 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 i don't really know like like where the strength came from but but it came man and like i was like able to deliver like a eulogy that would have made my dad proud and i was proud of and it really i felt like i was able to honor his life there um so that was really really a nice thing but the thing that I remember about that, and I actually was home this weekend, and I, I, I asked my mom if she remembered this, and she did. So after the funeral, we got in the, the you know, the, I guess the limo or whatnot to go to go to the burial, and I had just given the eulogy. My mom looks at me and is like, you know, this is a bad time, but like what you just did with that eulogy, that really made it better, and thank you, and like that meant a lot to me, and I never forgot that. Um, so that was like a really good opportunity to like honor my dad. And that was a, that was a cool moment. I, it sounds like it meant a ton to your mom. Yeah, obviously. And I'm so happy you found the strength and courage and and confidence to with literally no notice, uh, scribble some stuff and stuff down and deliver a powerful eulogy. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, I mean, that, that is like otherworldly sort of trauma in your life um but how how soon after did you ask beth to marry you uh so we got married in 93 may 8th 1993 so and my dad was may of 92 so we were already engaged to be married um at that time um so i had asked her and um and she said yes so we knew we were getting married. Oh, and that because yeah, cause that was when, when my mom was always like, "Your dad knew you were getting married." He knew, he knew yeah. So that was like kind of a, a point that we were happy about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I, yeah. So um, that that long. So. But you ended up settling in Northern Virginia after college. It was because yeah. of a job, or is that where Beth's from, or both? Yeah. So no, Beth's Beth's from here. She went to Radford. Um, I went to Virginia Tech. So I met her at. Um, a bar right there called Crickets um, downtown. Um, it's uh, Blacksburg City, um, right there off the right off the campus. And she w- went to Radford and was from from Northern Virginia. So when she she's one year she graduated a year earlier than me. So I moved up here to, to to be. I just I was able to. She lived with her parents, so I moved in in the house with them here, and then um, I got a job. Um, from here so that she, she's the reason that I was here initially and then I got my first job here and I we've never we haven't left since uh what, what part of northern Virginia so it's um sent we live in sent her at, that was Fairfax where her mom and dad lived um but we now have a, a single family home in Centerville okay yeah yeah, yeah. and you you stayed there for a long time you must love it yeah that, yeah it's yeah great area um 
it's, I mean, there's great baseball here. There's great job opportunities, um, great gyms, great people. Um, it's a transient area a little bit. Um, it's, it's, uh, got all the sports, um, teams. So yeah, we, we love it. I mean, I, I can't really imagine us leaving here. Uh, Northern Virginia has got to be hard to move. Around. I what I tell people that live in Northern Virginia is I don't know how you deal with the traffic trying to move around. Is, yeah. is it not as bad as I think it is? No, it's bad. Um, it's it's. I mean, there's a lot. It's. I'm used to it. I'm desensitized to it. I, I try to put I, I, the, the two things I try not to to let affect me best I can is the weather and the traffic. So I kind of like I'm not going to let those ever bother me. So I, I, I you know, I it's um, going to Richmond on 95 backs up when you're doing, making that run. Um, but you get used to it, man. Um, I used to have to deal with 66 all the time with my job, but now I have a sales job where I kind of move around more. So I don't have to deal with 66 too much. Plus they just expanded 66 out to four lanes. So it's not near as bad. Um, but yes, no, it's, if, if traffic bothers you, you this is not the place to move to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're saying, you saying that weather and traffic shouldn't bother you is essentially saying don't sweat the stuff you can't control. <laughs> Yeah, right. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I hate to ask this next question, but I mean, you had two sisters that I, mm-hmm. my impression was you were, you were pretty close to, yeah. Um, and Carrie ends up with, I mean, she was married at the time, right? Yeah. Yep. But I'll stop talking. T- tell me, uh, <laughs> well, tell me about Carrie in general, your relationship yeah. with Carrie, because you yeah. knew her for most of your life at that point. Um, and then then um, what happened in '99? Yeah, man. So Carrie. Uh, Carrie Bell, uh, she's married, became Carrie Briere. She's 10 years older than me, so she'd be 64 now. Um, but when, you're, when your sister's 10 years older than you, they just have had a lot of respect for her. Like, and I told my mom this the other day, like I, I went through a period of time where like everything she said to me, I did. It didn't matter what it was. I never wanted to let her down. If I was coming over to her house and she's like, hey, can you help me clean up the garage? Like I was like gonna clean up the garage so it was like you could eat off the floor. Like she had, she moved into a house um in richmond and i remember she's like hey can you help us do the move and like i just remember like having like ultimate respect for her and then i would always go to her with stuff like i would go with her with baseball stuff relationships with girls and i would just like pick her brain because i she was a good person she she worked um retail at britches um she had a, a, a retail clothing job and she was usually the manager of the store too in williamsburg um, she was really into sailing. Um, her her husband Chip they they sailed all the time at Fishing Bay Yacht Club. Um, so she was a, a mentor for me, um, and um, yeah, I loved her. And that so this was Dece- December ninth, nineteen ninety nine. So seven years after my dad, um, Chip and Carrie um, chartered a a private flight out of Hanover Airport to go to New York City to go to a Christmas party it was December. And the main thing when you do that with that flight was just like seeing the, the, all the lights and uh, on the bridges as you're flying, it's kind of cool. And then they were going to go to a, um, a, a cocktail party and then they're going to fly home. So, um, what happened was, um, they, they got up and it's a small plane of Beechcraft, and they're, they're flying into Teterboro airport. Um, it's, which is in New Jersey and Teterboro airport is known to be a really hard, um, 
airport to fly into. It's super busy. On this particular night, they were 17th in line to land. Mm. So that means you got to circle the airport for a long time to get 16 people to land before you. So the guy that's flying the plane who they didn't know because they chartered it and of Hanover Airport, there's four people on the plane, Carrie, Chip, the pilot, and then one person that worked over Hanover Airport said, oh, yeah, that sounds cool to see the lights. So I'm going to jump in and fly up there with you guys. So those are the four people. And they didn't know the other two people personally. So air traffic control, ATC, um, tells our pilot that um, to, to he needs to come in for these certain coordinates. And the guy replies, and I've read the transcript many times through the NTSB, the guy replies kind of vaguely. And then ATC is like, no, you need to make sure that you're coming in at these airports. Is that clear? And I'm paraphrasing now. And the guy gave like an aloof answer. So anyway, it starts to get worse. And, and all of a sudden, the voice from ATC starts to go up and starts to get tense. And the guy's like, and again, I'm paraphrasing, sir, do you understand me? You are flying into the airport from the wrong direction. You need to change your coordinates to X, Y, Z. And you need to do this immediately. Do you understand? And our guy would would didn't was like either either didn't respond in some cases or he responded with like an inappropriate answer. It wasn't like yes, sir. I'm making the move now. I'm I'm changing it. It was just off. And the ATC guy was getting annoyed with him as he should have been. And so he jumped over and started telling other planes, "Hey, this guy's a rogue. We don't know what he's doing. He's coming in from. Be careful." And telling commercial planes that. And like the commercial guys were responding like very like positively and clearly like, yes, sir, we see him. Thank you for the heads up. Thank you. And, and, and so everything was going normal with those guys. And then our guys jumps back in on, on our pilot and it's like, sir, you are coming in from the wrong angle. You are directed to, to change immediately. And so what happens was um, all of a sudden um, and, and, and there was like a, you know, a two minute silence. Well, during that silence, this Beechcraft um, it, 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 they crashed. They were low and they, they crashed into a, it was actually in a backyard in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, right outside of Teterboro. It, it, the, the, the plane crashed in the ground. It hit a small shed. It clipped the house, hit a small shed, and the fuselage like went up 100 feet in the air. Killed my sister immediately on impact. Killed my brother-in-law immediately on impact. Killed the one lady that went up there immediately on impact. The pilot actually lived. He was sitting on the ground, Indian style, on fire, screaming. And neighbors from around there ran to it with blankets, put the blanket on him and put him out. And he was like, you know, 100% torched from head to toe, but alive. And he made it off the property alive. He died soon thereafter. Um, so all four people were dead. Um, and what happened was... And again, I've read the NTSB and with my, and the pilot was a rogue pilot, man. Like he had, had, he had already, already had crashed one time for running out of gas. He had been written up for, um, a, like a, a hole in the plane where it wasn't keeping the proper pressure multiple times that Monday, this was a Friday, that Monday, he was scheduled to go in front of the NTSB for a hearing for all those violations. And of course, my sister didn't know that when they charted the plane, they just thought they're going with, oh yeah, it's cool, yeah, this guy, I'm sure he knows what he's doing. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. And a lot of the articles written, like people from the Hanover 
airport that knew this guy. Like I read the articles, like one of the letters said, I see this pilot finally killed someone. And we all knew that was coming mm. because this guy had a reputation for that, um, for being that type of pilot. Um, so I, I, do I know what happened up there? I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I'm guessing that like they probably got, maybe they got caught up in the tail string, you know, the tail stream of, of one of the big commercial airlines or, you know, I, I've never flown, but I'm sure when you're you know, not that high above the ground, if things get a little off, you know, you could probably lose it quick. And, and I guess that's what happened. So, um, yeah, so um, so ultimately um, the guy was, I mean, he was he was deceased. So there was really nothing there. Now, we, we did we did sue in that case. One lesson learned from not suing from my dad, but we did. Um, and what it pivoted on, you see, he was chartered what we had to like figure out if if chip and, and carrie had just gotten on there as like hey can you drive us up there as a buddy that's one thing but it was sundance aviation was the company and so it was chartered so and we won and, and the money we wanted was because chip little chip had been orphaned you know so we did get some financial help there which was given to him to help him and you know fund as he grew up because now he did not have a mom and a dad so so we, we, we pursued that one and, and, and it came out in our favor. So um, my, my mom and I soon thereafter drove to New Jersey together and walked it. And it was I still have the parts of, of from that plane in my and from my dad's car in my garage, 20 feet from me as I'm sitting here right now. So I walked that property, picked stuff up and like it was still fresh, man. And like the people in the backyard, like the people who we hit the house, like we went in their house and talked to them and they like told us about that night and how it went down. And that's how I know about like sitting Indian style and all those details. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, T, in seven and a half years, you lost uh, two of the other four immediate family members you grew up with. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I, I can't fathom it, man. I, I can't. Yeah. So yeah, so it's, I'm up, you know, we've really rallied to, you know, for my mom, um, you know, Jenny is my uh, a mother's sister and she lives in Richmond close to my mom. And then I go home to see my mom. I mean, I almost have basically every every Saturday I'll go for a few hours, spend time with her. We have a really close relationship. Um, and, you know, we talk about my mom and I'm sorry, I'm we talk about Carrie, my sister and, and my dad, obviously all the time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's sad and it's, it's definitely sad, but it's also, um, you know, time does help, you know, and, and all those things that you, you go through, like denial and acceptance, like those were real things. Like I was able to do it without, I haven't gotten any help or therapy or anything. Like I've just been, I've been, okay. I've been worked through it myself. Other people in the family have helped, gotten help, but, um, yeah. So, but you kind of go through it and then you finally get to the acceptance stage. So, um, you know, but I'm, and I'm proud that I, my mom was like, cause I, you know, I, I never let it, like, I don't mean this in like a tough way, but like, I never really let it slow me down. Like, I mean, it, 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 it made me sad, of course, especially I was kind of hardened by the time it happened with my sister. Like when it happened to my dad, like, this is a weird thing to say, but like when it happened to my dad, I was like, damn, I don't, it's going to be tough to get through. And then I battled through it. But then when it happened to my sister, I was like, I know that I'm going to make it through this because I like one, I've already done it. And then two, like I'm old, I'm nine years, you know, seven years older now. But, you know, you just for me, I found I was able to get a lot of strength 
strength from it as well. So it's helped me in that way. Yeah, um, T, I, there's a lot more that I want to talk about. I know you, you get up early. I, I For this particular uh, recording, I I got a couple more questions for you, and then yeah. I want to have back on to talk about, uh, amongst other things, more baseball and your mom, because your mom is an awesome lady. Uh, okay. and I'd love for, your, for you and I to talk more about your mom, uh, especially me not asking questions and shutting up and listening to you talk about her. Uh, all right, so last two questions. This is a, this is a strange question, but we ask most of our guests. You're a talk show host, one time only. You get to invite whoever you want. Um, they can be famous, not famous. They can be um, living or not. Um, they can be family members. They can be friends. Your show can be. Um, you could be going for ratings. You can go for just pure joy. Uh, it can be thought provoking, it can be whatever kind of show you want to have. You're going to have one male guest, one female guest, uh, and, and a musical act. And if you're into stand up comedy, you can give me a stand up comedian. And I, 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 I'm not going to answer for you, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. And, and you can give me who you'd have on your talk show. Hmm. So a male and a female? Yeah. Okay. Um, Think for a second. Now you're good. It's this usually causes uh, some some thought. Yeah, because it does come out of left field a little bit. Um, I mean, I already know the male one. I'm thinking of the fe- one with the female one. I'm gonna say. Um, all right. Well, hopefully the female will come to me. The, the 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 male one is is David Goggins. Um, <laughs> he's he's <laughs> unbelievable, man. Yeah. So I'm really into Goggins. Like, um, if you don't know who he is, he's a guy who came from uh, hell uh, beaten by his dad um a horrible situation at school racism against him um became a 300 pound guy spraying for cockroaches cheated in school had nothing going on and through his own willpower with his mind a battle he runs by himself as he says he was able to become a navy seal and break the world record for pull-ups and run ultra marathons which means 100 miles plus um 200 miles even and transform his life his body his mind into an elite human being that's extremely inspirational and his book is um can't hurt me and it details all of this and so I, the closer i could get the goggins the better just because i mean i've listened to like tom bilio interview him and jocko interview him so i'm I, I would have to come up with some unique questions but um spending time with with goggins would be would be awesome uh, so you've heard of him Paul, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what, what's Goggins mean to you? <laughs> I mean, he's tough as nails and he's like, whatever, uh, you, you can do anything you want to do. You just have to get your mind right. And just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he, uh, he's one of those rare people that when, when people say mind over matter, he mm-hmm. lives it all the time, every single day. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's, it's interesting because he's like 
I mean, he, I mean, he's, he is on social media and he kind of like talks bad about social media too, like just to kind of get his message out there. But the, the things that he did to, as he says, callous his mind. Um, and he, he created Goggins, which is like an ultra ego for him. Like there's David Goggins, who is like Paul Gilman and T-Bell. Like this is our normal, normal day and how we go about it. And then almost as an, almost like a Superman flip to Goggins. And he created that in his mind when he needed to go there. So, um, I think it would be cool to, to get, to get to know him that a lot. And, and I've, you know, I've tried to take, as you said, like I, I enjoy fitness and working out and like the, his principles are, you know, are, are, pre are pretty amazing. I think I'll uh, check out his book now. <laughs> yeah. Can't hurt me. Um, yeah. So, um, female, um, and would you say the other one was a rock star? Uh, just a musical act. Can be a group or a solo musical act. Oh, um, I mean, I'm going with Van Halen there. I mean, you know, fifty-one fifty, David Lee Roth. Um, going back old school. I mean, you remember us cranking that out in the '80s, right? Panama, Panama, man. Yeah, Panama, and jump, and that's one. Is, is that on your playlist, Paul? When you work out, uh, it is what, not. What's on your playlist? Uh, I, I'm a grunge guy, man. Early '90s really influenced my musical taste. So, what's tell me a song on your uh, well, not necessarily songs. I, I'm into bluegrass too, and I can't yeah. tell you the names of most of the songs I listen to. But uh, yeah, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, uh, Allison Chains. Yeah, uh, a little bit of Chili Peppers, but I, I'm really listening to a lot of bluegrass these days. Yeah. yeah. Um, female. Like, so go back to your initial podcast. Um, I mean, I, I guess I would probably have my mom on, to be honest with you. I mean, she, yeah. I, would, I would probably, I mean, she's not a famous person, but my Didn't mom, have to be. yeah, I mean, my mom is, is the strongest person I know. And, you know, she gets strength that is otherworldly and is able to, to, she has an amazing story. I mean, she, she got COVID in 2020 and. Um, it, it messed up all of her lungs and scarred her. And when I was at the hospital with her, I had four doctors come in and tell me she's going to die. Here's the number for hospice. Call it. This is it. And all four of them said that. And I was just like, my attitude was nah, not, not, not here, not today, not on my watch. I, I, we're going to, we're going to figure this out. And um, between me and mom, like I brought her up here to Herndon. We put her in a, in a, in a, like a nurse a place where the, it was like constant help around the clock. And we set up a fit, fitness plan for her, for walking, for, um, for doing like light weights, eating perfectly. Um, the, and then got her the right, um, med medicine and with her will and strength, got her back to prior baseline before COVID. Wow. And so today, like this past weekend, actually the past two weeks, we got her, she got her membership back at the YMCA in Richmond on West End on Patterson. And she goes there and does water aerobics. And the first thing she told me when I talked to her after the first one, cause I, I said, Hey, you, you need to like, when you go to this class, like start slow, don't overdo it, but 
but also you know, build up and try to improve and you know try to like compete in the class you know and so first thing she said to me was like i, I was the best person in the class <laughs> you know what i mean so here she is you know eight, 85 years old 84 years old you know in the in the deep end at the ymca like in 2024 doctor said call hospice you're done to yeah. you know like sitting in the water like paddling and saying i'm the best person in this class man so like it's that mentality that that is awesome and you know she's also you know, obviously a very good person a loving person and, and an incredible mom um so all those things too but um she's got a, a very powerful story to you know as we've kind of talked about here with what, what happened with my sister yeah. and uh and my dad all right let's end with talking about uh your wife and your kids tell tell us about them okay yep so beth is um she's a kindergarten teacher here locally um and she um and she uh is she's a teacher's assistant um for the kindergarten um and then i have three children um jamie uh, graduated um, undergrad and graduate from virginia tech and she's a, a um, a teacher in uh, Manassas, uh, and then and she I'm actually very proud of her. She's at um, one Teacher of the Year award um, this past oh. year. She found out last week for her school. Oh, that's great! Lock Lock Loman um, School in Manassas. So she's Teacher of the Year. Um, so that's Jamie, um, and then um, my youngest daughter is Sarah. Um, she's turned 19. Um, she is a um, a dancer. At, on the dance team at Virginia Tech, freshman, um, and she uh, is um, loves being hokey. And um, then I have my son is Hunter, and Hunter is currently um, tra baseball training. He's in Tennessee at a facility that um, is they teach driveline training. So he um, he has three years of of he's a four O student in college and has three years on his under his in his back pocket towards credits towards college so he only has one more year to grad to graduation but he just hit pause to take a year to just train and to try to get bigger stronger faster he's a big kid he's six six 190 pounds and you know he, wow. he's yeah he's i mean he's moved his velocities he'll touch 93 94 you know, sits every bit of, of 91 92 um and you know, he's got great command um, really good slider, pull the string. That's good change. So um, his, you know, his goal is he'll he'll return to competition um, soon um, with a goal for um, returning to college baseball and 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 a goal to play professionally. That's awesome. You said he's six six. He is. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He's a tall kid, man. He he grew like in his sophomore year. He grew um, six inches in like one wow. year. Yeah. So he jumped from from like six feet to six, five. And then he's, he's pushed out another inch since then. <laughs> That's great, man. It's yeah. great to be six, six when you're trying to be an athlete, uh, as you yeah. get older, six, six is not so much fun, but yeah. 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 Hey, uh, I, I, I told a fib, um, one more question. Yeah. You and I had briefly chatted about the podcast. I don't know, a year or so ago, I, mm -hmm. I said, Hey, want to be on it? And you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Mm. But then you reached out to me two or three weeks ago and said, you're, ready to do it what changed um 
honestly, man, like in the last like four or five months, I've really like rededicated myself um, to try to transform myself mentally and physically. And um, it's given me a lot of confidence. So, I mean, I go to the gym, I get up at four in the morning and I'm lifting at five o'clock every, every morning. And um, I eat right five meals a day, portioned out. Um, I go to sleep at the same time, you know, get a good night's sleep. And I'm also like listening to like, like I said, David Goggins, um, Jordan Peterson, Rogan, you know, I listen to like just pumping good stuff through my mind. Um, and then being around like my mom, like every Saturday and just like, it's really put me in a good place and made me just feel good, good about myself and stronger. And so I was like, Oh hell man, you gave me that opportunity. And not that I was never like, I was always good to go, but you know I mean? I just like feeling good from, from like rededicating myself to everything that's important. Um, so, um, so that, that made me pick up the phone. I was like, Oh, you know, I was be fun. And, and I, I watched a little of the coach Sismandera podcast and it was pretty cool and, you know, good chance to catch up with you as well. Yeah, man, absolutely. I'm, I'm very glad um, the last four or five months have gone really well for you. Uh, I sounds like I need to take some of your advice, uh, your passive advice. You're certainly not actively telling me to make changes <laughs> in my life, but I don't know if it's 4 a.m. is in the cars for me, but I can certainly get up early and start uh, working out consistently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really glad you did this, T. Uh, that, I appreciate it. I'm going to have you back because there's a lot more to talk about. I mean, we could probably talk about your mom for an hour. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, I, I don't think we, I don't think we dug into uh, baseball as much as you are passionate about it and, and been consistently passionate about it your entire life. So I want to spend some more time there, and we could probably throw in some high school basketball too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the jobs I had. Yeah, and and. <laughs> Yeah, we've been going strong here for a while, but yeah, it's yeah. Nice. I, I, don't, I don't want you to miss your bedtime, man. That's <laughs> no, been great, man. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today, and um, anytime you want me to come back on, you know how to just hit me with a text, and we'll schedule it. But I appreciate everything, man. And thank you. Good luck to the center stories from the center of the universe. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.